I am going to preach today on the Word of God, not just from the Word of God, but on the Word of God. The subject is the Word of God. It is, it is um, for me, um, I, I can say that I love my wife and my kids. I love Jesus Christ. The, the Word of God um, elicits and draws affection from me that is um, quite strong. And because the Word of God draws me to Jesus and the Word of God draws me uh, to my family and to you all as a church, I would say that my, my affections for the Word of God um, are as strong as or tightly wound up in the affections that I have for, for Christ and the people in my life. And so my prayer is that I would do the subject justice this morning. So I am going to pray before I begin and ask the Lord to bless you and to bless me that I could effectively communicate uh, the heart of this message this morning. Lord Jesus Christ, as David said, your word is life and your word is true and it is pure. And we love your ways. We love your teachings. And so God, this morning as we look at the importance of your word in our life as a community, in our life as individuals and as families, I pray this morning, Lord, that uh, you would make our hearts and our minds indeed receptive to your word and that you would help me to communicate it clearly and effectively and with the heart that I have for it, uh, that you could be at work in us to draw us uh, closer to Jesus Christ and closer to each other because of the power of your word. I pray, God, that uh, you would strengthen my words, that they would be reflective of your text that they would unify and grow us in love for one another as a church, and that they would give honor and glory and praise to you. In your son's precious name we pray, amen. So a couple years ago, I was um, praying for and getting to know uh, our neighbors, and we got to the point where I felt comfortable asking him to uh, study the Bible with me. And so we studied the book of Ecclesiastes together, and he, he brought his Bible to our first meeting, and I was uh, surprised that he had mentioned that he would, and then I saw it was like an NIV study Bible, 1984 edition, one of those Bibles that you saw. Uh, if you, I mean, okay, I was born in 72, so um, it was a Bible that you would expect to find in the presence of someone who was committed to Jesus, was committed to the Word, was committed to the church, that was evangelical in terms of their respect for the Scriptures and their respect for the Gospel was high. Uh, none of those things describe my neighbor. But here he had, he had this Bible. And I've looked over my, my shelves just this week, and uh, I've got dozens of Bibles on my shelves. There have been over, the, the Bible has been the most published and distributed book in history. Well over five billion copies of the Bible have been printed, published, and distributed. And yet the challenge of the Bible, here you have this book that is communicated to be the witness of life. 
more fulfilling than any of our heart's desires. And yet it is increasingly, uh, at least in our culture, marginalized, disrespected, um, and, and not a part of our lives. The challenge of the Bible is actually to read and meditate and to do it. David said in Psalm 119, Psalm 119, it's a huge book, it's the largest psalm, uh, excuse me, it's a huge chapter and it's the largest psalm. It's all about the Word of God. And there's a, a, a favorite portion in it, verses 33 through 40. And I just want to read it real quick. Uh, the text we're going to be looking at today is Nehemiah, where they, where they bring together the people of God after they return from exile and they study the Word together as a community. But I wanted to... I wanted to um, Draw our hearts into David's heart for the word. He says this, Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. What I love about this psalm is, his, is, his, is the connections of his affections and his love to the Word of God. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. Turn away the reproach that I dread, for your rules, your rules are good. Behold, I long, I long for your precepts. In your righteousness give me life. And the idea is that life is found from God. God is, God is the source of life, okay? The Bible is not God. I want to be very clear because I'm going to be saying some great things about the Bible, just like David says some great things about the Bible. But we do not worship the Bible. We worship the God that the Bible testifies to. But David knows that the precepts and rules and commandments and teachings and ways found in the Scriptures are the means for us to discover God, and God is the one then that gives us life. And so I hope today to strengthen our desire and longing for the Word of God so that we would experience the life that God has for us. I love that, verse 36, not to selfish gain. How much of our culture is in pursuit of gain that strengthens and gives life only to ourselves with little to consider about others. And David says, I, I don't want to look at things that bring me selfish gain. I want to look at your word for it gives me life. And so the book of Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah, it's one of the latter books in the scriptures that talk about kind of the final history of Israel uh, before, before Christ comes and fulfills the, the Old Testament promises of the promised Messiah. And so Israel had been taken captive by Assyria, the northern 12 tribes of Israel, taken captive. They had disobeyed the word of God. They had not fulfilled their promises and covenants that they made to him. And so 
the northern ten tribes, which is called Israel, went into Assyria, took them, and they never returned. Babylon came generations later. Judah, the southern two tribes, had not responded to God's promises. They had not fulfilled their covenant with him. And so Babylon came. They invaded Jerusalem. They, they, they captured all the people and took them into exile and turned the city of Jerusalem on fire. This is the city of Babylon. For 70 years, for 70 years, the people of God were exiled in the city of Babylon. And then as foretold by the prophets, the rulers at the time, eventually it was, Babylon was taken over by the, the Persians, and they let Israel go back in several expeditions. And they went back and they rebuilt the temple. And they went back and they rebuilt the walls. And then the people gathered to once again be the people of God. And Nehemiah is the story of the people going back. It's the second trip after the people had gone back and started to, re to build the temple again. And then it got slowed down because of opposition. And then it picked back up. And Nehemiah and his crew from Babylon came and started to build the walls. In like 52 days, they rebuilt the walls. And it was a great time for Israel, but it was a sorrowful time for Israel as well. And so they come together after they had finished the walls, after they had endured uh, a lot of difficulty in the rebuilding of those walls, after they had looked upon their, their land, and, and Nehemiah wept because of, of the, of the dis disaster and destruction that had befallen Jerusalem. But so they come together after their project is done, and they study the Bible together for two days as a people. And so we're going to work through Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 1 through 18, but we're going to do it in chunks. And the first passage we're going to look at today is 1 through 8. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And so this is about 50,000 people. The book of Nehemiah, they, they number them after they've kind of got the work done. So right before this, this episode of where they come together to study the Bible together, um, they number them. It's about 50,000 people. They all gather together in one place. 50,000 people is TCF Bank Stadium, okay? So a big stadium full of people. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses. So Genesis through Deuteronomy. That's what they've got. That the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard, on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square, before the water gate, from early morning until midday. So four to six hours he's reading out of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. In the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. So they provided child care. For those who couldn't understand. Doesn't tell us how they provided child care, but everybody that could understand the word was there. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform 
that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Matithia, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashem, Hashbanadadah, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Joshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kalita, Azariah, Jazabad, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law. While the people remained in their places, they read from the book, from the law of God, clearly. And they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And so you can imagine the scene. They have somebody, or, and it's not crystal clear. It seems like they may have had one person reading from the book of the law and then scattered throughout the crowd um, were people giving commentary. But it also seems, and I think this is more reasonable, that because it, it says they read, it seems like this, this huge crowd was scattered and then they had like pockets where, where leaders would, would read and then explain, read and then explain to pockets of people scattered out. Regardless, anyway, they were all reading and talking about and discussing the Bible. And so the first point, I got four points. The first point I want to make is that we need to let the Bible captivate us. Captivate us. To captivate means two things. First of all, it attracts us. So there's, there's something attractive. There's something beautiful. There's something alluring about the Word of God. But to captivate also means to hold. Not only, not only is it beautiful and attractive, but it also is substantive enough um, and beautiful enough to hold us there. And so I want to ask the question, what is attractive and beautiful about the Word of God? And I want to list a few things. What is attractive and beautiful about the Word of God? The message of the Bible is fairly clear when you read it without any training. You eventually come to the realization that we are to, to believe that there is a God that exists, that he has given his son to die for our sins, and that through belief in him we find life. Okay? That's a beautiful message. But that message not only exists at this level that you can understand it if you, can, if you just read it simply and over some time but it is so beautiful 
so beautiful in, in the ways that it subtly communicates that message from its first chapter to its end. You guys, it takes poetry, it takes narrative literature, it takes legal literature, law codes. It blends these all together. It positions them in just the right way to subtly and beautifully communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what continues to draw me into study, yeah, it is my calling, it's my job even, um, but the, the, the quality that continues to pull me into studying the Word of God is this beauty. It is unsurpassed. And it never fades, which is another great thing about the Word of God. We have a lot of beautiful things in our lives. People are beautiful. But you know what? People get old and they become less beautiful from a physical standpoint. Buildings, I, I, I love buildings. Buildings fall down and decay. Works of art eventually aren't relevant enough for us to connect to their beauty or they fall apart and decay as well. You know, the word of God, the scriptures, which existed, and this is, Paul says that the scriptures preach the gospel to Abraham. The scriptures didn't exist as a book at the time of Abraham. So the scriptures, the word of God is this, it's this mysterious thing that, that has been put into a book that reflects the word of God who is Jesus Christ, but its beauty never fades. But its beauty is only experienced at its deep levels if we give ourselves to it and let it, let it captivate us and let it draw us in and we spend some time with it. We don't experience beauty in quick accelerated flashes. We experience beauty when there's meditation and calm and we let it soak in. What holds us? What holds us? It's the same thing that attracts us. But I think what also holds us is its reliability and consistency. The word of God never fails. And the word of God, and this is another beautiful aspect of it, its relevance to the human condition is unparalleled. My, my same neighbor, who, who is a good friend, he said, why should I follow the words of a book written 2,000 years ago? And I try to explain its relevance. <laughs> I try to explain its meaning. But the wisdom and the understanding of God is not given to everybody, the word says. But what, what I have found in my own life and in the life of my family, and especially as I help in the work of counseling and shepherding people, you see people's lives mirrored. Or I should say maybe we see the lives of the people in Scripture mirrored in the lives of, of us. The challenges they face, especially in the narrative literature. Like... You know, there isn't a lot of specific instruction on marriage in the New Testament except husbands love and cherish and nurture your wives and do not be harsh with them and wives submit and honor and respect your husbands. Okay, and yeah, a lot is wrapped up into that. 
But the substance of narrative literature through, again, Genesis through Revelation, in terms of what can be seen in human nature and how the instructions that we find in the New Testament and the Old, uh, in these characterizations and in the very subtle and what some scholars have said, uh, through a, a very significant economy of means. The Bible doesn't work hard to explain everything in super detail. What it does a beautiful job of is putting just enough there that causes us to start asking questions because we see some glimpses of ourselves in it and we're drawn to it and we know there's some life in there and we see people's lives that are alive because of, because of the word of God's influence in their life and so that draws us in as well and, and we see and understand and we grow because of, the, because of the, the depth and the subtlety of what is there in scripture and what it points us to in our everyday lives and, and when God gives us understanding through his word and through his spirit and through the church community that he has put us in uh, and these things become real these things become real, and we grasp these ideas. One of the, one of the most enjoyable things that, that I experience in all of my life is, is, is just sitting in our, in our house church meetings, working through texts of Scripture, and we go through in detail, and we talk about these ideas, and we pick out the significant words, and then people begin to reflect upon what God is doing, and they say, you know what? And Phil, I hope you don't mind me saying this, but Phil a few weeks ago said, you know, I, I am experiencing something inside of me that I have never felt before because of what I'm understanding about the Gospels it's communicated in the book of Galatians. That made my week. That made those kinds of things. That's what drew me into ministry in the first place. I began to see the effect of the Word of God on the lives of the people that I loved. And I was just like, Whoa. I would much rather be doing this than destroying people with planes and missiles. Challenges to being captivated. I think one of the big ones is that we are generally easily captivated by entertainment and pleasure and simplicity and by words and images that are fed to us rather than letting the text of Scripture uh, form ideas and images in our minds. This was at a conference. This was like 12 years ago, but I'll never forget it. Uh, it was one of these early meetings of what of the group that was at that time called Emergent, and Doug Paget was leading, and Tony Jones was leading, and they shepherd and lead a pastor a church here in town. Very different from ours. Very different in their approach to the Word of God. And I was a part of a kind of a, a working group that was talking about how to make the Bible um, uh, more relevant and how to get people more interested in the Bible. And they're shooting around all these ideas about how to attach entertainment, uh, and this is before smartphones, to the scriptures and um, making it more cool and making it so that youth can be more, more easily understand it. And I just kind of introduced this idea. I said, you know, what about actually reading it. And literally, they laughed at me. And I kind of just shut down after that because I knew I was not in the right place, not in the right camp, not at the right conference. Uh, but that's what happened. They couldn't believe that I had suggested that we actually read it. The church has followed the cultural trend towards being 
youthful and driven by entertainment and easily, easy, quick gratifications. Book a few years out uh, by Thomas Berger. He wrote it a few years ago. It's called The Juvenilization of the American Church. It's a history of how the church kind of got to this point where it is largely reflected, uh, reflecting the, the youth and entertainment culture that all of our culture seems drawn to. He argues that American Christians are increasingly untaught and becoming less Christian because of its desire for entertainment and feel-good religion. He says this, Juvenilization has made the process of finding, maintaining, and submitting to religious truth more problematic. And the faith that Americans choose is increasingly the faith of moralistic therapeutic deism. How can religion and the Bible make me feel good? God, faith, and the church all exist to help me with my problems. Religious institutions are bad. Only my personal relationship with Jesus matters. In other words, large numbers of Americans of all ages not only accept a Christianized version of adolescent narcissism, they often celebrate it as authentic spirituality. And he lays a lot at, at the feet of we do not train our minds and our hearts towards understanding the Word of God. So what do we do to restore captivation? It's not going to come by just sheer will or discipline. That's not the gospel, is it? We don't do things out of sheer will or obligation to God. I mean, that's part of the gospel, fearing Him, fearing discipline. But, but primarily, it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance and the love of God that draws us in the, into Him. It needs to start with the belief that God's word is life. That God's word is life. Can we say the things that David said? It is the testimony to Jesus that gives us life. Now, part of the argument behind the gospel and the word of God being life is in the beauty that it creates in the people that hold to it. And so sometimes we're drawn to, drawn to the word uh, because we see people around us that are drawn to the word, and those people give testimony to the word. And so that's our responsibility as Christians, is to, is to show with the lives that we have the beauty of God and the gospel and the word of God, and tell people, listen, I am who I am because of the gospel. And the beauty and the joy that I experience in me is because of the gospel. People should be asking, as, as Peter assumed, have a reason be ready to have a reason for the hope and the joy that is within you. And then when you know and have a sense and believe that it is indeed life, then you've got to do the work of putting off the old and putting on the new. Let your faith in what you believe direct your actions. Start reading and learning how to read the Word of God. We're going to start classes again in the fall, and we're focusing our primary classes down to um, three. And the first two are about reading and understanding and interpreting the Word of God. And you all know me. I'm very, I, I, I like to keep things getting better, okay? And so we're, we've tweaked significantly these classes, and I'll be leading them this fall and in the spring. 
But we're putting together a class on how to understand the message of the Bible and how to go after the books of the Bible. It's two different classes. Uh, but we're, we're writing it in a way so that the beauty of the word, which is, is, is so profoundly there, and our approach to studying it are integrated. To understand the Bible and to see how it's written, uh, it's, not, it's not given to us as a mystery. It is beautifully assembled, and when you, and when you see it and understand the directions that it gives us in order to understand it, the beauty that it reveals, it's just, it, it comes along at the same time. I would encourage you to consider taking those classes this fall. Second point, let the word of God break you. We're to be captivated by the word of God. We are to be broken by the word of God. And so the next section is just one verse, verse 9. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and the scribe and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. The Bible should break you. Why were the people weeping? Well, it is the story. I mean, they were, they were reading the Bible, and the Bible told them, if you follow my word and, 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 and have your heart devoted to me and believe that I intend good for you, then I will bless you and multiply you, and there will be nothing that you need to fear. If you reject me, if you follow other gods, if you disobey my word, I will put you into exile and I will destroy you. That's what happened. And so they came back and they were reading them this word, and, and it was just, I think, part of what caused them to weep, the loss of what could have been. Isn't that what we kind of maybe get depressed and down and cry about at times? We see what things could have been, and we see where we're at, and we, we can't bridge the gap. Have we missed our gifts and callings? Have we missed God's plan for us? Have we missed what we could have as a family? I mean, these families are going back. They have no land. They have no homes. They have no city. They had to rebuild all of it. Whereas hundreds of years earlier, if they would have started building and staying faithful to God, they would have had land and homes and holdings, and it would have been spreading throughout the world, and they would have had influence all over the world. So sometimes we cry and we weep because the loss of what could have been. But I think a lot of the weeping and crying was also because of the real pain and suffering. They had to work in the rebuilding of the wall with a shovel in one hand and a sword in the other. And people were constantly attacking them. They're there with their kids, their children. And they're rebuilding walls and gates. And there were financial problems and food shortages. And so they're experiencing real suffering. And so they're crying because it hurts. Look at what could have been. Look at the pain and suffering we are going through now. And so we should weep when we read the word of God at times. James says to weep, wail, and mourn because of the miseries that have come upon you because of your sin. Our sin and our transgressions and consequences have real effects. We hurt ourselves. We hurt others. We dishonor God. We should feel 
guilt, shame, and fear when we read the Word of God. Yeah, it is beautiful and captivating, but part of that beauty and power in its captivating abilities is it is speaking to us in real ways that we know to be true, and sometimes those real ways that we know to be true are the hard things that we need to hear. Sin's effects in this world are devastating. We should read the paper and be angry, and we should be sad, and we should weep. What's happened in Charlottesville, Virginia this weekend in terms of the racism, the violence, the hatred, the disregard of human life, it should stir up emotions. Emotional reactions are the signs of a heart that is being affected. There have been times where I've been sitting alone at home or in my office, and, and, I, and, I'm, and, and the, the, the pain and suffering in my life and in the life of my family or in the life of this church the previous church that I was a pastor at for years where I simply wept because I saw my sin and how it hurt people, how it's hurt my family, my wife, my kids, others people's sins, and, were, and how uncontrollably. There are challenges to being broken, though. Hard hearts. First thing, we, we're not reading the word, so we never let it say the things it needs to say to us. Oftentimes, though, it's hard hearts, and we don't want to acknowledge the need and the weakness. Just as, been the, just as there have been times where, I had, where the word of God and the spirit of God and the people's words into my life in terms of correction have caused me to break down crying, there have been times where I've just ignored what I feel going on in my spirit. I've ignored the word that has come to me, and I haven't let the opportunity there. We need to let, we need, we, again, we need to believe that God's good, that God desires good for us, and that the suffering that we experience here, one of the most amazing truths of the Bible is that suffering leads to joy. <laughs> His suffering leads to joy. And Paul said, I look forward to sharing in the sufferings of Jesus. It's a hard passage out of Philippians 3 to really say, you know, I don't know if I can say that. I don't know if I want to say that. But Jesus looked at the shame before him and looked forward to the joy and went through it because he knew that joy was the ultimate end. And so believe the gospel and that Jesus has gone through it before us Suffering is real, it hurts, it's temporary, and it is cleansing for us because on the other end is going to be joy and the experience of life that the Bible promises us when we are cleansed of sin, which then is point number three. Let it refresh you. So let it captivate you, let it break you, and then let it refresh you. Verses 10 and 12. 10 through 12, excuse me. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. You know, what happened, this day actually fell on the first day of the seventh month. Look at Leviticus, look at Numbers. This was the Feast of Trumpets Day. 
It is supposed to be a day of partying and of celebrating and of eating, of eating the best food that you have. That's what this day was supposed to be for. So the Bible did its work in breaking them because they needed to weep. They needed to respond to what they as a nation had done in bringing the judgment of God upon them. But they need to recognize that the judgment of God does not stop at his judgment. All right? We've got to transition from judgment back into the promises to be refreshed. God wants our good. He wants us to party. He wants us to believe the gospel that it is indeed good news, not bad news. We get the law, we're broken, but it leads us then, as Paul says, like a schoolmaster, like a teacher, like a babysitter, to the person of Jesus Christ and the gospel. The word of God and all of its rules and all of its laws and all of the strange laws that we find in Leviticus were ultimately intended so that they would find joy and peace in God. What are the challenges of this? I think we can become overwhelmed by our sin and we can become overwhelmed by our sadness. And for a season that we need to expect to be overwhelmed by sin and sadness. But we've got to get out of the sin and the shame and the guilt and the fear and the sadness. It is not where God wants us to stay. The accusations of the enemy bring the law upon you and they bring all the shame and the guilt. Okay, the Holy Spirit brings that as well. But the Holy Spirit brings you along to the hope of the gospel and that Jesus is the answer to your sin and guilt and shame and fear. And the Holy Spirit draws you out of it. It is the enemy that wants to keep you there. And our own self-righteousness that wants to keep us there because many of us, myself included, do not want to acknowledge that we need Jesus Christ to be refreshed by him. We keep working different ways in our mind. Oh, it's really not that bad. I really didn't do this. I didn't hurt those people that much. It's all been misinterpreted. We keep trying to justify ourselves and our actions out of it. We just need to realize that there is no justification in us. We are only going to be right and good and true and pure and complete and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And as soon as we get to that point where we say, okay, you know what, I'm done trying. I believe that Jesus and his word and his spirit and his church are life. And we don't read the Bible correctly. And that's one of the things, again, we're trying to put into these classes. The beauty of the gospel is at the beginning of the Bible. It's not when it, it's, it doesn't start with Matthew. All right, the gospel does not start with the New Testament. The gospel starts in the book of Genesis. And seeing all along, even through Israel's challenging times, even through all of those laws, you're reading through Leviticus and it's like you're walking through a desert. Oh my goodness, this is terrible. I'm just going to skip to Numbers. Oh, I got to get halfway through to Numbers because the first part of Numbers is boring too. Even through all that, when you can see the gospel in it, all of that becomes alive and all of it is beautiful. Even the dry, boring stuff becomes like, oh my goodness. The phone books in the Bible, the lists of names, they're all connected to the gospel. And then you can see how something dry and beautiful, it's something dry is indeed so beautiful because it's connected to the beauty of the gospel. The last one, let it direct you. Let it direct you. So be captivated, be broken, be refreshed, and then let it direct you. The last passage here. Verses 13. On the second day, excuse me. 
On the second day, the heads of fathers' houses of all the people, with the priests and the Levites, came together to Ezra, to the scribe, in order to study the words of the law. So the household heads and all the priests came together to study the Bible. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. They were supposed to set up tents. That's what these booths are. They're supposed to set up tents during this week in the seventh month as a way of reminding them about the time when Israel had to live in tents for 40 years. It's, again, a way of reminding them about God's deliverance. Hey, we no longer live in tents. We used to live in tents. Now we don't live in tents. Let's live in tents for a week. Ugh. Those of you that camp, I love camping, but after three nights, camping is, I'm, I'm fine with going back home, going to a hotel, whatever. So you're in this seven weeks or seven days of camping, and you're like, you know, I am so glad and thankful that the Lord has delivered us from tents and that we now have homes to live in. It's a good thing to do every year. And that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem, go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. Now get this. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths for from the days of Joshua, the son of Nun. So Joshua, after Mo Moses dies, Joshua's the next one in command. They still haven't taken over the land fully yet. From the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, to the day the people of Israel had not to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. They had never celebrated the feast this, this week of living in the tents. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, seven days, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. This is the first time they'd ever obeyed it. Hundreds of years. Hundreds of years. So they were letting the word of God direct them. What does it mean to be directed? We have to recognize that the word of God is, the, is, a, is authority. That is ultimately substantiated. You guys, Paul, had, in 1 Corinthians 15, the word of God is substantiated by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If Jesus Christ did not die and resurrect, the Bible does not have anything to say to us. It has no authority. It has no power. The authority of the Bible isn't just, hey, this is the Bible, the word of God. You need to believe it because it says Holy Bible on the, on the cover, see? The word of God in its authority is substantiated by the fact that death was conquered by the person of Jesus Christ. And there is no power greater than that. It is the power of creative life that goes back to Genesis chapter 1. God created. God created. And God recreated in Jesus Christ, never to die again. And so when we, when we reject the word of God, we're rejecting the power of the creator. So we need to submit to that authority, and we need to participate in the local church community. The church is called the pillar and support of the truth. That means... Jesus is the truth, but its manifestation in the world is the church. So we speak the truth, we live the truth, we embody the truth, we confess the truth 
together because we need each other to do it as the Simmons family confessed. They have grown in Christ only as they have entered into community because you you can't follow the word unless you're in a community of people. How do you be generous and meet the needs and share the burdens of others if there are not others? And so we're called together as the family of God. What are the challenges to this? Uh, we have a tendency that if we think, if we know something, then we're automatically doing it. No, you're doing it if you're doing it. If you know something and not doing it, you're, that's a hypocrite. We've got to do what it says. And we've got to not be blinded by the deception of knowledge. We've got to take the time to meditate, to read, to study, to interact with it together, which is why we've put that structure into our house churches. It is the, the mechanism of God to work truth into its people is the people. And so we've put that structure into our house churches where we are working through challenging passages together and making very difficult things that are hard to understand known broadly. And it's, it takes work, it takes time, but I think it's indeed having its effect. I think we need to acknowledge the cultural trend against authority in general. Harry Blymeyer says this in The Christian Mind, the current rejection of authority is so innately bound up in people's minds with the worthwhile and noble efforts of our generation. So to reject authority, and you see this in the schools big time, to reject authority is to be considered noble and good. That's our culture. One is staggered at the magnitude of the task of trying to rehabilitate the concept of authority as something that is estimable, held up, and highly regarded. We need to submit ourselves to the authority and recognize that that is a good thing. And we need to believe, again, we have to believe that the gospel and the word of God indeed are good news. It is good. It is good. Christ said that if you abide in me, if you abide in me, you have to abide in my word. Which means you have to, to study it and to read it and meditate upon it. You have to find the time to do it. Michael Casey says this in Sacred Reading. I have to accept responsibility for my own use of time. And to stop regarding myself as the mere plaything or victim of external contingencies. Second, I have to take the trouble to establish some priorities about life. One of the repeated themes throughout Scripture is that the wise person, the young man who keeps himself from evil, the stable, steadfast, fruitful person, You see this at the end of the law, the beginning of the writings, the end of the writings, the beginning of the prophets, the end of the prophets. He who meditates on the law day and night. Christ meditated on the law day and night. Christ didn't all of a sudden wake up one day and recognize, you know, I I, I think I've got to die for the sins of the world. Do you know where Jesus learned that? Jesus learned that from the Word. Jesus studied the Word and was taught by the Word and recognized that he was indeed the Messiah and believed Jesus had faith. The Scriptures say that Jesus had faith that propelled him through suffering 
for the joy that was on the other side by believing and obeying the word of God. Jesus was compelled by the word of God and says, I will, th- I will do nothing or say nothing outside of what God has told me to do. So ultimately we have to come to the place, if, if we believe in Jesus and believe in the gospel, then, w- then we have to believe that the word of God is worthy of the time that it takes to invest into it. And that it will bring delights and joys and fulfillments and, and all the desires of your heart. One of the beautiful things about the scriptures for me is that it took the desires of my heart and exponentially multiplied the joy that they gave me. Wife, family, work, food, drink, relationships, all of these things we can experience because we don't make them God, we serve and worship God, and then God brings joy through knowledge of his word and through the spirit that indwells us and through our relationships with each other so that we can be fully human and experience the beauty that God has for us. Let me pray. Lord God, thank you for your word. Thank you for it, how it opens up to us and how you teach us through it. I pray, God, that we as a church would fully commit to, as we have, Lord, I thank you for this church's commitment to hang in there through the challenging, ongoing, repetitive studies of your word that we do in our house churches. I think I can speak, God, for all of us if I observe life has been found in us because of the work that you've done through your word in our lives, and we are thankful for it. So, God, we just pray that you would continue that work, but expand it and help us to excel still more, that we could find and your glory and your truth more and more. In your son's name we pray. Amen.